Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Duane Osterland, and I'm your host. Our guest today is Katie Vernoy, and she is going to talk about sacrificial helper syndrome. And man, I have to say, in doing this episode, I really saw myself in it, and um, it really made me take a second look at my own life with regards to helping others and how I may need to practice a little more self-care. So I hope you guys enjoy. I think this episode is really going to be great for anybody who's in the helper profession, but also people who are helpers or volunteer helpers, people who are sponsors or work in the, in the recovery field on a volunteer basis or maybe work in 12-step programs or other support groups. Often we can get caught up in helping others at a risk to ourselves. And I definitely saw myself in this a lot in this episode. So I really hope you guys enjoy it and let's just get right to it. Here's the episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Katie Vernoy, and she is going to talk about something I think is kind of important in the helping profession, and that's sacrificial helper syndrome. Katie, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you and your audience. So I'm Katie. I am a therapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a practice in Torrance, California. I also am a coach and consultant with helpers. I help helpers to help better. (laughs) That's kind of a tongue twister. But yeah, I work with folks on what I call sacrificial helping syndrome, which is people giving more than they have for the people they serve. And too often, I think those of us who have had some sort of 
life event or, or experience in our lives that have completely transformed us can end up with this syndrome where we just want to help others get through it better than we did. And we don't think about ourselves as we're going through that process. So, so yeah, that's me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I think that's, it's such an important topic because I definitely know as a professional helper that this has definitely been an issue for myself and sometimes giving too much. So when you, when we met and we kind of began to kind of talk about this subject, I said, oh, well, this is, this is really interesting because this is definitely something that I struggle with as well. So can you kind of go in a little bit of detail about, about what this is? Sure. And just so you are aware, this is something that I struggle with too. I think so many of us helpers have this issue. I joke that I have sacrificial helping syndrome in partial remission because I'm working on it really hard. But what it looks like is oftentimes when we are called to help people, we will put our own needs in the backseat. We'll focus on what they need. We'll focus on how we can help other people. And we end up doing podcasts on vacation. <laughs> exactly, which I'm doing right now, everybody. <laughs> we were talking about this before and, and we were, before we started recording and I'm like, you know, I'm actually on vacation this week and I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we, we, can, we can have work invade our personal time. We can also end up not doing our own self-care practices. It could be scheduling in clients or taking care of a friend's need when we're supposed to be working out. We can forego meals because somebody needs our help. And so we end up really burning out. And I know for myself, this happened when I was working in public mental health as I was working so many hours. I was so focused on my staff. I was focused on the clients we were serving. And I I was I was a mess. I was I was just a mess. I was so burned out and I realized that a lot of my staff were burned out because they were so passionate about the work they were doing that they weren't taking care of themselves. And so for me when I went out on my own, I realized this is something that was really important to me. The help that we want to provide, the things that the people who are called to help, the things that we want to do for other people is so important. So if we burn ourselves out and we can't do it anymore, then the help isn't available. And so I wanted to provide support to people to not do that, to still be able to help, but do it in a way where they can sustain it. Okay. Yeah. I think that's so, so important. So tell me a little bit about like, how does this kind of happen, especially in the helping profession, why are helpers kind of, I, I guess they kind of tend to fall into this camp. That's what I've noticed working this, in this profession. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the thing that I see is that it's in the profession. It is seen as important to be altruistic, to give and to do the, the things that we're called to do, all the different types of help, out of the goodness of our hearts. And, and it's very much a culture. And so when we actually ask for money, when we set limits and say no, when we do these things, sometimes there can be a backlash from the people in our lives, from society. And so we're kind of set up right, <laughs> in a right. lot of ways. There's, there's expectation that we're going to be doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. I think another thing is if we have found in our lives that our worth is defined by what we do for other people, it is painful not to help when someone asks for it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And um, I've definitely felt that before in my own life. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
certainly the the things that the research that I've done is people who become therapists or other types of helpers, oftentimes that was the role they held in their family was that they were the parentified child, they were the mediator, they were the person that made sure everybody in the family was okay, and that was their role. And so they continue forward at the, in that role out into the world. And that could look like personal life where they're taking care of all the people in their life and not taking care of their own needs, or it can be entering in kind of in a, a formal helping profession and then kind of following all the all the all the pressures to give more than they really have and not take what they need for themselves like time off or appropriate financial comp- compensation or a, a reasonable schedule or those kinds of things look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, definitely. And I've also noticed with uh, therapists, and I also want to tie this into, because this is the Addicted Mind podcast, and we also focus a lot on addiction, is that a lot of people who get into recovery from addiction also end up becoming sponsors or becoming therapists themselves and then end up, I mean, it's, it's a passion. I think most therapists get into therapy because it's, they're passionate about it. And that passion tends to create almost this drive to, to keep helping people and to kind of this almost ease to put your own needs on the back burner. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we think about the work that we do, whether it's in recovery, whether it's in straight-ahead therapy, but the work that we do, it's life or death. We're stepping out to help people avoid dying or avoid having a really, really awful life. And it's such important work. And so it can feel selfish to say, hey, I'm not feeling it today. Let me just take a take." the day off or let me rest. It can feel selfish to say, well, I know you're in crisis, but I don't have the time to take care of you. It is critical that we figure out how to do it because we can't always be managing everybody else's crises because then our bodies will scream out and we will crash and burn and we won't be able to help anybody. Right. And I think that's so true. I think in as, as I've worked in this profession, I think I would be put myself in the same kind of camp. I'm kind of halfway in recovery of this, I, I still find myself wanting to almost sometimes give too much and really having to be very, very conscious of, of saying no and saying these are the limits because it's just this desire to give and, and, and it feels so good to give. But then down the road, it's kind of like, hey, wait a minute, I've given too much. Yes, yes. And I think that there is this, I don't want to say that we want to rescue people because I think that isn't quite exactly right, but there is definitely this sense that without our help, people would not be as as well off. And I think there's some truth in that, but part of our helping has to have some limits to it because we need to empower people to step into recovery on their own. We need to empower people to find their own ways to manage their own crises, to, to soothe themselves. And I think it can be really hard when we know where they're at, when we identify what they're going through, when we feel it so completely, it can be hard to step back and, and and make the hard call and say, I'm sorry, but 
I need to refer you out or I need to, to have you take care of that before we get on the phone. I can't answer the phone right now, but we'll set up a phone call tomorrow. I think it's, it's something where it can feel like this huge crisis that's on our shoulders and it's so hard for us to say no or to kind of appropriately assess even the level of crisis. Right, I definitely. And that kind of leads me to my next next question. When you say assess, how do we start? What are the what are the signs that maybe we are giving too much? How how do we start to know as a as a helper that we're starting to yeah, give too much away, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I, I think it can be hard because especially when someone's early in recovery or someone's early in treatment or even you know, children or people who are very sick, when we're helping people, they need a lot from us, especially at the beginning. And so it can be hard to identify when we transition away from that additional help. But I think when when people are truly dependent on us, when they aren't making decisions on their own, when they're not able to, to claim their own problems and take care of them, we can realize that, hey, wait a second, we're not empowering them, we're actually infantilizing them. We're treating them as though they can't handle their own problems and, the, and that, that actually limits their ability to grow. And so that kind of goes into the whole super, superhero rescuer thing where if we're really taking on that role that we're responsible for someone else's well-being when, they, when we really aren't. Of course, there's people who we are responsible for their well-being, our children, our, our animals, our, our spouses potentially. Like there's more responsibility there. But, but separate from that, if it's, if it's someone that we're sponsoring, if, there, if it's someone who we're treating in treatment, if we're feeling responsible for their well-being and feel like we need to be on call 24-7 and available to them at every single second of every single day, regardless of what's going on for us, then that that becomes problematic because right. we can't do that. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And that's a definitely a good sign that, hey, we're, we may not actually be helping this person gain their own skills to take care of themselves in their own life. I mean, they've they've got to be able to do that as well. So there's a balance there. What about as 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 like a therapist and the helper, what are the signs they might feel that they're giving too much of their life like in a big general sense? How how do what are the signs that they start to say, "Hey, maybe I need to set some boundaries about around the work that I'm doing?" I think the, the words I use to describe that can be burnout, compassion, fatigue, unchecked vicarious traumatization. Those are the kind of clinical words. But basically, when you're feeling burned out or when you're wishing that clients would cancel, you're feeling grumpy about interacting with a client, everything seems insurmountable related to work. Like you're starting to burn out and, and you need to be able to take some more time for yourself. With compassion fatigue, that's really not caring about what's coming in the room or coming into your life. You just don't have the ability to care much anymore. And so I think that can be really, really hard because as helpers, the reason we did this is that we care and we want to keep caring. And so when we start noticing that we don't care, we really want people to cancel, we look forward to days off, not just like, hey, I'm looking forward to the weekend, but like, oh, I wish I got sick so I wouldn't have to go in tomorrow. Like if we're trying to find ways to to get out of work and acting as though we're kind of prey to work versus in control of work, that's a sign. Work is taking over. Work. I'm at work's beck and call, and I'm feeling completely 
just burnt and I still have to keep going into work. So that's that piece. The vicarious trauma, especially when when folks are working with people who have some sort of, I don't know, like specifically trauma, but it could be things that are happening that are, are upsetting, those kinds of things. If we find that we're taking those things home with us more, we're it acting as though we have had that trauma or that specific troubling event. We're feeling the symptoms of PTSD. You know, we're feeling on edge. We're we're feeling that we can't trust people. If those things start coming up, depending on your work, you may need to do some consultation and take some time off because I think it's it's really easy to if you're especially if you're just spending time with people who you help, it can be very easy to get very isolated in that. If life isn't expansive enough outside of work or outside of the help that you're doing, it can be really hard to recognize like, hey, I am not seeing the whole perspective here. I am so locked into this tiny little piece of my life. Yeah, definitely. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about like when in addiction treatment, you're talking about that compassion fatigue and also that vicarious trauma. One of the things that happens a lot is is that with with addiction, you're usually dealing with a lot of underlying trauma as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and clients need, especially in the beginning of recovery, they need a lot of support. And I've seen a lot of therapists who they give so much to these clients. They're really trying to help them, but they burn out pretty fast. And especially in some mm-hmm. at treatment centers where the clients are there for many hours a day or, or 24-7, Mm-hmm. It becomes a huge problem, and they're seeing all of this trauma at the same time. And that happens a lot in addiction treatment. Oh, yeah. I, I actually started an addiction treatment, and and I found that it's so easy to be drawn into the, person's, the person who you're treating into their crisis. And I think it's so critical that we remember the other person's crisis is not our crisis. The other person's trauma is not our trauma. And I think it's being able to ground yourself and identify that you're safe, identify what you actually need to respond to and what can wait. Because I think too often, if someone is feeling really dysregulated, they're feeling maybe they're going through withdrawal, maybe they're they're triggered and they're wanting to use, they can have a lot of urgency and and be very, very emotional coming up to you and saying, I need you to take care of this right now. And if we respond with that level of urgency, we're constantly kind of in this crisis mode and we're taking care of them. But if we actually take a pause, take a breath and assess, is this truly a crisis or is this an opportunity for them to problem solve on their own, to practice some of the self, you know, self-soothing and self-regulation techniques? Is this, a, is this an opportunity for them to grow rather than let me just go take care of it for you? That can be very helpful because then you're also getting a step away while they are taking care of it. But yeah, it's so hard. It's such a hard thing to, to be able to say no when somebody's so upset and so wants your help. And it feels like a crisis because it feels like a crisis to them. Yeah, definitely. And and you can feel that. I mean, I've, I've been in those situations where you feel that pressure to help and you, you almost take that crisis on personally. And I think as I've done this work and, and gotten more mature as a clinician, I've been able to draw that distinction better. I wouldn't say all the time because I also have a real passion for helping people too. And sometimes that gets mixed up with that balance. So I totally understand that. I was going to even broaden this out a a little bit more because we're talking specifically about like therapists, but working in the addiction field, there's a lot of people who are like sponsors or 
run 12-step meetings. And I think this information could apply to them as well because they, they're also helpers. Uh, maybe they're not professionally trained, but I find that a lot of them can find themselves in that position as well. Yeah, and I think when you are volunteering to be of of service, to be of help, either either as a sponsor or as a as a um, meeting, uh, the person who's running the meetings, I think it can be hard because you don't necessarily have the training. And so I think it it is something where really being aware of what's going to get you going, where you feel like you have to jump in and save the day. But I think it's also really figuring out what are the boundaries I want to set and how can I live by example by continuing to set these boundaries. I think that when we're constantly called upon as a sponsor or as as the meeting kind of gets out <laughs> unruly or there's there's things that are required of us, it can be very easy to fall into a pattern of just trying to manage it and just trying to handle it and and potentially getting kind of upset and frustrated with our sponsee or with with the people that are coming to the meeting because nobody's volunteering to help with different pieces or whatever. And I think being able to step back and set limits can be so helpful because I, I joke and I always say it's not altruistic to become a jerk. Right. Because when we keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing, we get frustrated and we get bitter and and we get snappy and we're not as helpful as we were when we kind of started out to volunteer. And so being able to identify where you can set limits and see it as setting an example for good, healthy boundaries good self-care because you have to really manage your own recovery too. You can't risk your own recovery for someone else's. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think that's also a, a learned balance too as we get into these helping professions and wanting to do this work and wanting to help everybody. I have another question because we, we were talking earlier before we started recording and you started talking about imposter syndrome and when we're having vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, does that kind of lead to imposter syndrome, which you were talking about earlier? Kind of. I think, my, I mean, I think it can. I think my my understanding of imposter syndrome is kind of separate from, from compassion fatigue and vicarious traumatization. I think it, they can happen at the same time and they certainly can intermingle and interplay. But when I'm talking about imposter syndrome, it's it's almost this piece of kind of leading to some of this uh, vicarious trauma and some of the compassion fatigue and burnout is that we, it's that part of if people actually saw who we really were, they wouldn't like us. They, who were we to actually be able to do anything of value? So all, so we continue to provide help and, and get people to like us based on helping them. And so I think what can happen is is if we feel less than, if we have negative feelings about ourselves or maybe old tapes that are playing that we want to hide from other people, we put on this front of the helper. And, and it's not even necessarily a front, but it can feel like it when it doesn't feel like we're really good enough. And so that that front can feel like that's so important and you can never let it down. You can't ask for help. You can't show mistakes. You can't deny somebody the help that they want from you. If somebody says you're good at something, you have to do it. And so it can it can set up this unreal expectations for yourself and in the authenticity in the relationships that you share will be lacking. You you won't be real because you you feel like you have to put on this front to be around people. And I think that can be a huge thing when when someone's had a trauma or or an addiction in the past where they feel like there's something wrong with them. And so so I think really being able to continue doing your own work and, and 
working the steps or talking with people who really know you so that you can identify when that comes up because you can really set yourself up if you feel like you're pretending to be good enough. Right. And I think definitely that's also something that comes with experience in the profession too, is your your own humanness is okay and, and can be part of this and can be part of this process of, of healing and, and helping others. Not only that it can be, but that it's so much more, it's richer and more effective if it is. Because I think about the work that I've done as a therapist and some of the most poignant moments were when I shared some humanness and somebody said, oh my gosh, it's possible. I see you as a capable person. And here you're just as messed up as I am in this way. Or you, you've, you've been there, you understand what I'm talking about. I think the humanness can be such a huge, important piece because as long as you're able to hold some positive boundaries, as, as long as you're able to kind of talk somebody through what, what you're going through and, and ask for help when you need it, it shows, it gives us realistic expectations. At this point, it's hard for anybody in the world to have realistic expectations, at least where you and I are in California. There is social media that makes it seem like everybody's living this perfect life. And so if that's what we're expecting from each other, all of us are doomed to fail and to feel like we're not good enough. And so I think when we can infuse humanness into the interactions that we have with the people we're helping, it really is much more effective for them. Right. I definitely agree. I mean, I think that's kind of critical to the the whole process of, of helping others. Um, okay. So if somebody maybe finds themselves with this sacrificial helper syndrome, what might be some steps they could start to kind of take to help themselves? I think the first step is identifying it because if they, it takes a certain amount of self-awareness to recognize that I'm doing more for everyone else and that's not the right thing to do. I think a lot of people understand that they're sacrificing their own needs for others, but it feels like it's the the right thing, the altruistic thing to do. So even just recognizing, hey, in doing that, I'm not the best version of myself and I want to do something different. That's the first step. I mean, that's the first step in most things. Identify you want to change the behavior, right? Right. I think once once you identify you want to change things, I think the first and most important thing that you can do is to really actually address it in a very practical way. Look at your schedule. Start carving out time that's just for yourself and do it in a way that is non-negotiable. And it could be I, I, I set aside time for myself where I'm going to meet with a friend who, who doesn't need anything from me and we're going to watch a movie. We're going to go shopping. We're going to go surfing. We're going to do whatever and, and make it because as helpers, we we're not great at being accountable to ourselves because we're not as important as everybody else. But if we set up an, a, an appointment with someone else, we will actually do it because we don't want to let them down. So if you can get your self-care in that way, that's great. But but start actually practically putting in time in your day, in your week, where you're focusing on taking care of yourself and really make sure that you hold yourself accountable or find an accountability partner or someone that you can spend time with that will help you make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Because even just getting breaks, you start having, you start making better choices and getting some rest and, and that kind of stuff. It's when we're running around like chickens with our head cut off that we continue to do the same behaviors over and over again. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, and I think I'm, it's so, um, you know, I'm just like seeing myself in so much of this as you're talking. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I got to really self-assess. I'm thinking about this and I'm like, man, I got to really do some self-assessment here because I love what I do, but I can also easily fall into this trap as well and easily put my own needs aside 
when I want to help somebody and 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 do this stuff. So I definitely understand this and can relate to this on such a personal level. I think it's it's really helpful to hear this and a, and a good reminder for myself. Oh, good. Yeah, I think it's it's really awesome. So, okay, as we're kind of wrapping up, what would you, if there was one thing that you could say to anybody out there, what would you tell them? Wow, what would I say to somebody out there? I think the biggest piece is if you are called to help and you're good at helping, you are so valuable and you have to treat yourself with the care and respect and love that you do for all the people you help. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. You can humble yourself into the to the poorhouse. You can humble, humble yourself into the grave. And then we are truly without the help that we need in this world. It's so sad how often I've seen people burn out and leave the profession, stop helping people, become really sick. And it's because they've not taken these kind of proactive steps to take care of themselves and to set limits and boundaries around what they do. And so you're valuable, I guess, is, is, is if I want to shorten it down, you're valuable, take care of yourself. Oh, that, that is so well said. Thank you so much, Katie, for coming on. I, I really, I really appreciate it. If anybody wants more information, how can they find you? I have a website. It's katievernoy.com. So it's K-A-T-I-E, V as in Victor, E-R-N-O-Y.com. And otherwise, uh, they can reach me on, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. So they can certainly find me there or email me at katie at evolvedthriveconsulting.com. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And everybody, I'm going to put all this information in the show notes and it's going to be theaddictedmind.com forward slash 19. So we'll we'll have that ready for you and uh, you guys can get all the information there as well. Katie, once again, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you guys for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. That was a really good episode. And man, that really cut close to home for me. So I really enjoyed it. And I'm really going to take a second look at myself with regards to some of the things that she was saying. Once again, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 19. You can go there and all her contact information will be there. So once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. It really does help get us noticed. Also, if you have any feedback to give me, just go to theaddictedmind.com and right on the side there, you can leave me a voice message and let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if you have any questions that you want answered. I'll try and answer them. If not, I'll try and get a professional that can. And once again, any feedback as well in ways that I can make the podcast better. I'm really enjoying doing this and I'm, and I'm really enjoying seeing it grow. So once again, I appreciate that feedback. So thank you guys so much. And once again, until next week, take care.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.